0: Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Now, when the evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God coming and taking courage went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus Pilate marveled that he was already dead and summoning the centurion he asked him if he had been dead for some time so when he found out from the centurion he granted the body to Joseph then he bought fine linen took him down and wrapped him in the linen and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observe where he was laid. Thanks. Well, I am thrilled um, that we're back in Mark's Gospel, because it's been a while. Uh, It's very exciting for us not just to be back in it, but we're near the end of our journey through Mark's Gospel. I looked over this last week, and we've spent about 50 weeks thus far making it to this point, the end of the life of Jesus. And then we paused, you remember, this summer, and we spent seven weeks talking about Jesus' final statements from the cross. And now we pick up the story. We're going to spend four more weeks in Mark's gospel, so we'll do it this month, and then we'll move on to something else, but four more weeks in Mark's gospel talking about what happens after that, after he breathes his last on a cross. And we won't jump to the resurrection today. We're going to stay put in this section of scripture, this little vignette, because I want to look at this story through two lenses because I think both are actually very important and and worthy of our time and attention this morning. The first is to look at it through the lens of the burial of the body of Christ. So I want to talk to you about why the burial of the body of Christ is significant and recorded for us. But then as we prepare then to transition into communion, we'll wrap up our time by more quickly, at a much more rapid pace, talking about caring for the body of Christ. So first, the the burial of the body of Christ— And then we'll talk about the care of the body of Christ. So first and foremost, like I just told you, let's discuss his burial, the burial of the body of Christ. You know, for me as a follower of Jesus, as someone who identifies as a Christian, I've spent a lot of time thinking and reading and talking over the years a lot about the death of Jesus. In fact, as a follower of Jesus, I've spent a lot of time thinking and reading and talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And I do that for obvious reasons. Those two events are so central, so crucial to the Christian message. You remember why we entitled our series On the Cross, The Crux, because crux is the Latin word for cross, and even our use of the word crux or crucial comes from the idea and understanding that the cross is the central thing that if removed out of the Christian message, then the whole of the Christian message ceases to exist. So the reason we spend so much time talking, and I assume it's true for you too, talking and reading and thinking about the cross and the resurrection is because of how central they are to it. However, I have not spent much time in the past thinking and reading and talking about the burial of Jesus. And yet it's interesting, all four of the gospel accounts make sure to give an account of Jesus' physical burial of his physical body. They all four give details about the people that were involved. They talk about Pilate and soldiers, these women, and Joseph of Arimathea. Even Zacchaeus is mentioned in John's gospel as being present and involved in this. They don't just talk about the people, they talk about the timing of it all. That there was a rush to get Jesus buried before the Sabbath arrived because the body of Jesus would have been left on the cross, exposed to the elements and and maybe even to wild animals and and birds during the Sabbath who might come and abuse and dismember his body. Details even regarding the place that his body would be laid are also recorded for us in those different accounts. Talking about a neighboring garden right adjacent to the place of the skull Golgotha where Jesus was crucified where a rich man by the name of Joseph had purchased a a, a tomb there that had been hewn into the rock face that had a single entrance and exit to it that hadn't been used by anyone ever before, Typically, they were used, something like that, where a dead body would be placed inside of it and then allowed over time to decompose. Once it had, then the bones from that body would be put into an ossuary, a bone box, and it would be placed somewhere else. In a sense, these were holding tanks where dead bodies would go for a period, but they had just finished, it seems, hewning out this tomb into the hillside, and it's never been used before, it tells us, and yet it's going to be borrowed by Jesus on this day see, before those gospel accounts even were mass circulated, because remember, I just told you all four of them give a lot of detail about this event. It's clearly important to the gospel writers even before their gospels were available to early followers of Jesus, having been written and then mass-produced or copied and distributed, even before that, the early church had creeds that they would say and that they would teach new followers of Jesus because not everybody had access to a gospel account of the life of Jesus, and the Apostles' Creed that some would trace back as early as the second century itself includes a statement about the burial of Jesus. Maybe you grew up in a church that would recite it each Sunday and you'll remember, it'll trigger the memory for you, that they do not just remember and, and make a statement about who, that Jesus under Pontius Pilate was crucified, but also that he was buried before on the third day, rising again from the dead and ascending into heaven, seated now at the right hand of the Father. I'm telling you that because the gospel writers felt it was important. The early church who didn't even have access to those gospel accounts, they also felt it was so important for people to know about a physical, literal burial of the body of Jesus. Think even of Paul. When Paul would summarize the gospel message that he brought, he said it included three central things. This is what he wrote the church in Corinth. He said, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. The summary that Paul gives of the good news of Jesus and his kingdom arriving was that Christ had died for our sins, our perfect substitute, as the scriptures had prophetically foretold, but that he also was buried and then rose from the dead. Okay, now here's my question that I was asking myself this week, and then looking at the text, asking it as well, that we'll ask and answer together right now. That's this, but why does the burial matter so much? Or why does it matter at all? Why is this important, significant? Why all the real estate in your Bible being taken up for it? I want to walk through four things quickly with you. And then, like I said, we'll shift from talking about the burial of Jesus to talking about the care for the body of Jesus. But first, four reasons why I think it's significant. The first is this. It matters because it fulfilled prophecy. Why does the burial of Jesus matter? Why is it recorded for us? It matters because it fulfilled prophecy. You see, as the day was coming to a close on this day when Jesus had breathed his last and died on a cross, as the day was coming to a close, two things are communicated to us. The first is that at that time, at that hour, sacrifices were being made in the temple of Passover lambs. And there Jesus, our Passover lamb, would breathe his last as the substitute for us who would allow for an opportunity for us to appropriate by faith his blood over us so that the judgment of God would pass over us just as it had over the children of Israel in the land of Egypt generations beforehand. But the other thing it points out in this moment is that as the sun would begin to go down, Shabbat, the Sabbath rest would begin. And historians, they're clear that that the way that the Romans would expedite execution, the way that they'd speed up the process of someone dying on the cross was for a soldier to take a large mallet with a, a large metal head on a, on a big club or a big stick, and they would go to the person who was being crucified, being executed through crucifixion, and they would slam the mallet into their legs until it broke their bones. And now with broken legs, as the weight of your body is sagging down, as it's pu- causing your lungs to, to be pushed into each other, as it's causing it to be very, very difficult to breathe unless you pull yourself up, pushing, pulling on the, the, uh, the nail that would have been placed through the palm, or not excuse me, not the palm, but just beyond the palm of your hand, the nail that would have been placed through your feet, pushing up on your legs, lifting up with your arms if you had broken legs and could no longer push up. It'd be just a matter of minutes before someone would suffocate and their story would come to an end. We know that this is what the Romans often did. And history paints the picture that the Romans, they were happy to leave people, crucified people, their bodies on crosses. They did it, allowing them to stay there, to rot and decompose as a statement to others who might pass by, that they could look up and see that decomposing body and see the crime above their head. It's a statement of the Romans to other people, don't you dare, the statement was, don't you dare try to do what they've done because look what's happening. Look what happens to people who do those things. However, in Jerusalem... A dead body decomposing in what is the holy city wasn't kosher at all. And this was a holy, sacred weekend. It's Passover weekend. So the Jewish religious leaders, they applied pressure to Pilate to finish the execution and to get the bodies off the cross before the Sabbath day would conclude or went before they'd step into it. In fact, John's gospel gives us these details. Can I read this to you? John chapter 19, if you want to flip there, you can. John 19, beginning in verse 31. It was the day of preparation. The Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath, and a very special Sabbath because it was Passover week. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with the spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness. This is John writing. I love this. That John begins to speak of himself as an eyewitness who is present to see this. He says, This is reported from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you may also continue to believe. These things happened, John wrote, in fulfillment of what the scriptures have said, that not a bone of his would be broken— and that they will look upon him in whom they have pierced. You see, this is how these prophetic scriptures were fulfilled. None of Jesus' bones were broken because a Passover lamb, according to the book of Numbers and then also Psalm 34, had prophesied that that a bone for the Passover lamb and the bones of the Messiah who would become our great Passover lamb would not be broken because you could not give a a blemished sacrifice to God. You gave God of your best. And so Jesus would fulfill that in this moment. Rather than breaking his legs because he was already dead, they would pierce his side. In the piercing of his body, in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, it says, Then they will look on me whom they've pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for one as he grieves for his firstborn. Remember, we're discussing Jesus' burial, and we're saying that it was important because it fulfilled prophecy. You see, after Pilate sent those soldiers to break their legs, they made their way to Golgotha, to the place where they'd find three men being crucified, again in fulfillment of, of prophetic scriptures that said that he would be numbered with transgressors, and there he was. When, when all of that is playing out, though, where Pilate is, enter stage right, is this man Joseph of Arimathea. A wealthy and prominent man, the Gospels tell us, from this city, Arimathea, who we haven't yet met in the Gospel records until this moment, but he arrives asking if he can take and bury the body of Jesus. And Pilate is stunned in the moment, it tells you here in Mark's Gospel, because he's shocked that Jesus died so quickly, and it seems that he even calls a centurion over who is a part of that grouping who went to go break their legs, asking him about how long Jesus had been gone, and then Pilate grants the request of Joseph giving him access to the lifeless body of Jesus that had remained fastened to the cross. The secret follower of Jesus named Joseph will get the body of Jesus and give Jesus his own tomb, making way for the prophet's words to be fulfilled yet again. In Isaiah 53 verse 9, it says prophetically, speaking of Messiah, that they will put him in a rich man's grave. In Psalm 16, verse 10, it also says, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to see corruption, or some translations say to rot in the grave. This moment matters because it fulfills prophecy. That's the first thing. Okay, the second thing, and you might think this is obvious, but please track with me, is that it matters because it proved Jesus' physical death. It proves a very real physical death. I mean, think about this with me. For the Romans to release the body of Jesus, they're making a historical, factual statement that Jesus is dead. You'd agree if they're releasing his body, they're confident that he's gone, that they haven't failed at executing him. For some of Jesus' own followers, so that's the Romans, now Jesus' own followers, to then take his body down from the cross and place it in a tomb and close it off. Rolling the stone into place is making a clear statement by not just the Romans, but by now also the followers of Jesus, his friends themselves. Their statement is that Jesus is dead. And then when you think about it, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, they'll show up and they're going to ask Pilate to seal the stone and for soldiers to be placed there around the tomb to protect it for fear that Jesus' own followers might try to steal his body and claim that all of a sudden we have a risen Messiah, if they're concerned that someone might steal the body and claim that he's alive again, it's very clear that even the religious leaders are making a statement that Jesus is dead. The Romans, the followers of Jesus themselves, the Jews as well, every major player, track with me, in these events that take place around the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, all of them are in agreement that Jesus is dead, which is super important, especially when you think that the leading opposition and leading theory for what happened, if Jesus did not rise, the leading theory that's believed by most is called the swoon theory, something we'll talk about next week, that Jesus didn't truly die, but merely swooned at the cross. So why is this important? It's fulfilled prophecy. It's also important because it proves his physical death that all of these people are involved, all of them very confident that he's gone, but it also matters for a third reason. And that's because it verified sources who were present and had first-hand eyewitness accounts to give. People who saw Jesus die, see him buried, and later will see him alive and testify to it. I mentioned to you already that all four of the gospel accounts record the burial of Jesus for us, and in doing so, they all highlight different aspects of what happened which is a great thing for us because we can piece together then a a picture in its totality and it's also a great thing for us because it shows us that these people didn't just sit in the same room together and say, let's talk about the same things, let's drum up one account of this and fabricate the story and it all is told the same exact way. Let me explain that to you. If today when we're leaving, we watch someone hit one of these parked cars and then run. So no one's hurt, everyone's fine, but it's a hit and run because they hit the parked car, we have a fender bender on our hands, and the car is off down the road. Now if the police showed up to get statements and a whole bunch of us saw it, the truth is a lot of us would say different things. Oh, all of us would say a car got hit and then another car left. But some of you might start your testimony testimony by saying, you know, it was a very hot day when this happened. Because that's what's on your mind right now. Or others of you, you would say, I know that it was getting close to noon when it happened because you remember your stomach growling right before you heard the crash of the car. For some of you, you would mention the aftermarket taillights on the car as it left the scene. And you could describe them in great detail to someone and even tell them, I'll bet I know where they bought those because I know that there's very few people who actually are authorized to sell those aftermarket headlights or taillights. For others of you, you'd look at the car and all you would say is it was a red car because that was all that you got. You wouldn't get a make and a model. Listen, all of us would see it from different perspectives. It doesn't mean that, that our testimonies are untrue. In fact, it adds to the credibility when all of us can express our own impression, our own takeaway of what we saw, yes, an accident, but viewing it from different angles. That's what's beautiful about the four different gospel accounts. But one thing that all these gospel accounts share in common is that they all list specific people who are present to see this happen. And they do that intentionally. Matthew will mention this rich man from Arimathea. It's a village right outside the outskirts of Jerusalem named Joseph. He mentions Mary Magdalene and the other Mary who were present watching his burial take place. Luke tells us about a man named Joseph, a council member. Scholars have long assumed that means he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the 70 elders who oversaw the religious practice of the nation of Israel, whom Jesus stood before the morning that he would be condemned to die, Luke mentions that he was a part of that group of people, but then also adds that he was a good and just man who had not consented to their decision, indeed, to condemn and kill Jesus. And he also mentions, again, that he was from Arimathea. Luke also identifies Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, as well as a woman named Joanna, and an additional group of women. John mentions Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus, and Nicodemus, whom he already introduced to his reader in a previous early account from Jesus' life. Now, why am I telling you this? Stay with me. Don't let me lose you. All of those people corroborated the details of Jesus' death, burial, and then his resurrection. Mark, you remember, please remember that he wrote this in the 60s. In the sixties A.D. is when he wrote this account and when it was beginning to be distributed to early followers of Jesus. It's the first gospel account. So before the Romans encircle around the city of Jerusalem, before they siege it and destroy it, before in 70 A.D., the Jews are dispersed greatly from the land, before life as they know it had come to an end, while everything was still normal and everyone is still present there in Jerusalem, Mark is distributing an account of his gospel, that includes him citing, referencing these key individuals. In fact, there's an odd redundancy in Mark's account. Three times in just nine verses, he repeats the same list of people's names for you. He reiterates them in verse 40, 47, and chapter 16, verse one. Mary Magdalene Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joses and Salomon. Again and again, he's referencing them And there's a a biblical scholar who I loved what he said about this. He said that we would view this as a source citation. This is basically a footnote where these women must have been alive at the time that Mark was writing or he wouldn't have cited their names repeatedly to his readers. And by including their names, he's really pushing anyone who's his reader to go and find these people in Jerusalem to ask them about the account that Mark is giving on their behalf. You see, we're discussing his burial, and it matters because of fulfilled prophecy. It also matters because it proved his physical death, and it matters because it's verified sources that were present, first-hand eyewitnesses of his death, burial, and resurrection. But here's that fourth thing. It matters because it sets the stage for the resurrection. This is why it matters so much. This is why every gospel account would keep this in their records. You know, I quoted earlier two prophecies about this moment. The first is Isaiah 53, verse 9, that he would be put in a rich man's tomb. Jesus was notably poor in the whole entirety of his ministry on the earth. In fact, some might classify Jesus even as homeless. And yet a garden tomb that's cut into a rock face with a secure door, this is an extravagant luxury to have that would have been very, very costly. And so the prophecy is fulfilled in this moment that though Jesus was penniless in life, he was buried as if he was wealthy, rich, prominent, even though those things weren't recognized by anyone. As you know, Jesus in this moment, he merely borrows this tomb. But Isaiah chapter 16, verse 10 was the other prophecy I quoted to you, where the prophet had foretold, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your holy one to see corruption. And one of the ways a body would see corruption is that it would begin to decompose and rot in the grave. So as some translations or translators would put it, you won't allow for him to remain in the grave. It's a promise here of resurrection. That's what the prophecy is, a promise of resurrection. But there's a second way that Jesus' body could see corruption. And that would be for it to become defiled and dismembered. You see, Joseph, he goes to Pilate directly in this moment, and think about this, asking for the body of Jesus. Otherwise, if he doesn't go and get it, Jesus' body may very well have ended up in a mass grave or a trash heap somewhere that would have been set on fire. Remember, most of these bodies that were crucified victims were left to begin to rot and decompose on crosses as a warning statement to those who were tempted to commit their crimes, but most of those bodies then would eventually end up thrown outside the city into a place that Jesus had spoken of called Gehenna, a burning garbage dump. You might remember we talked about Gehenna many, many chapters ago in Mark's gospel where Jesus did comment on it, and if you don't remember, buckle up for a quick nerd rant and then we'll move on. But the Gehenna, the the Valley of Gehenna, or of Hinnom, is a place that was named Tophet. It was given the name Tophet, which means the place of burning. And there was a reason why the people called it the place of burning. It was this geographical gorge that's on the southeast side of the city walls in Jerusalem. It's the lowest point geographically in that region and morally, the lowest place morally. It's a historical landmine of broken, messy idolatry. Over 3,000 years ago, when the Jews would first enter the land, the children of Israel would stroll into the region around there and enter Jerusalem. Once they arrived, they were appalled to see what happened at the place that they called Tophet, the place of burning. They saw the local pagan people sacrificing their children to their pagan god at this location. The Hebrew name that they would give to that pagan god where we found ancient statues where it's the... uh, uh, an embodiment of this pagan god, a deity, with its arms outstretched, made of stone or at times of, of metals, and they'd place it over a fire so that the hands would heat up, and then they'd place their babies in its arms, giving their children as sacrifices to this pagan deity. The Hebrew name that was given for this deity is Molech. It's, it's two Hebrew words squished together. It means the king of shame. This is the place of burning. This is the, the place that's the most shameful place on planet Earth in the minds of God's people. And God had warned and forbidden his people for participating in this vile pagan practice of worshiping this god Molech. But if you know your Old Testament, you know that the Bible tells you that tragically some of the kings, even three of them specifically, would reject God and reintroduce this pagan vile practice into the nation until a young king emerges. His name's Josiah. And he would eventually go on a rampage to desecrate and destroy this awful godless place. Yes, this young king turns the area of Gehenna into the city's dump, intentionally to keep people away from it, where rubbish and trash were discarded. Where they found that there was uh, basically crude versions of aqueducts that were channeling sewage, human waste, down there where people would take their porta potty. Uh, by that I mean like a pot. Full of potty, and they would dump it into this valley, and then even bodies of dead animals or criminals would be thrown there, and the place was constantly burning because they lit it on fire, so smoke was constantly ascending from the nasty place that Josiah chose. I will make this a trash heap so that this will never be practiced again. And in Jesus' day, it was still used as the city's dump a massive trash heap, a mass unmarked grave where Jesus referenced worms and maggots eating flesh off of uh, corpses that were there and fire is referenced because the trash pile was perpetually burning. Now, if if I've lost you or bored you, just come back for a second. God could, well, I, I should ask it, could God? Could God? Raise a body back to life after it's thrown into this trash heap, to have worms and maggots begin to consume it, and to have fire begin to destroy it. Could God do it? Well, certainly, right? God could do it. But would humanity be able and willing to receive it? Could we put our faith in it, the resurrection, if it emerged from that scene, I mean, how could someone, think about this please with me, how could someone verify that it was Jesus if he did not emerge from a specific sealed tomb, chiseled into rock face, which tells you there's only one way in and one way out, prepared by Joseph, sealed by the Jews, guarded by the Romans, and visited by his friends who are mentioned by name in the four gospels? If instead, his body was thrown into a mass grave down in a forsaken valley where it was burned and eaten by animals only to now have a mysterious man some days later roaming the city claiming to be the risen Savior. Leaving no opportunity then, if that's the case, for someone to go looking for the body that had been discarded versus someone going to a tomb, seeing that the stone was rolled away and when it rolled away they saw that there was no body any longer inside. If Jesus just ends up in an unmarked mass grave, how could they ever verify that it was Jesus who was alive after the fact? see, here's what I'm telling you. Remember, we're discussing the burial, and it matters because it set the stage for the resurrection, something that we can trust as an actual verifiable event in history, which is what we talk about next week, but also it matters the burial does because it had verified sources who were present in firsthand eyewitnesses of it people who saw Jesus die buried and rise from the dead and spoiler alert those people would die for their testimony that Jesus was alive and it matters because it proved Jesus physical death the romans would not given over a living criminal who they failed to execute The Jews would not have feared the story of a resurrected Savior if he wasn't dead at all. And his friends would not have mourned his death and buried their hope inside a tomb and closing it off if he wasn't actually dead. And it matters, please hear me, because it fulfilled prophecy. And those prophecies were given so that humanity would be left certain that the identity of heaven's promised deliverer was irrevocable. That's why those prophecies existed. See, we're talking about the burial of the body of Christ. But here's the truth. My, my message to this point has almost been exclusively cerebral. And so when we hear a message like this, we can stop and just go, well, what's the point? Why am I even here? Well, Well, the point of it would be that you should place your faith in Jesus, to choose faith in the identity of heaven's deliverer and in his work as your substitute and in his commitment to you because he'd go to such depths as to be willing to die a terrible death for you. So choose faith, but then the second line of application is that I think that we are to do what Joseph of Arimathea has done here. Remember, I told you I want to see this passage through two lenses. I'm going to do this very quickly now on the back half as we transition towards communion. But both are worthy of our time, the burial of Jesus. But please talk with me very quickly about caring for the body of Christ. Caring for the body of Christ. You see, some people have poetically said that these final encounters that humanity has with Jesus create vivid pictures and portraits of what we are invited into in our choice to engage with Jesus even still today. In fact, some would point to and say that the first true follower of Jesus was Simon the Cyrene. Because Jesus had said, if you want to follow me, you need to be willing to take up a cross and follow me you might remember in this story, Jesus' strength gives out, and when it does, they, they make, they force, they compel a man, which is a part of Roman law, to carry Jesus' cross for him, this man Simon the Cyrene, who would carry the cross behind Jesus, following him there to the place called Golgotha. In fact, Luke's gospel is very clear and careful to tell us that he followed behind Jesus, carrying his cross. He's doing, he's providing a vivid illustration of the very thing that Jesus had said. If you want to follow me, pick up your cross and follow me. And there was Simon, walking behind Jesus, seeing the journey towards Golgotha from almost the same exact perspective as Jesus himself. He's seen some people in that moment who would weep for Jesus. He's watching, though, as the majority would mock Jesus. Simon's close enough, though, that would have probably began to feel like like, some of that attention was directed at him as well. He got a second-hand taste, you could say, of the burdens that Jesus was carrying. I think the same is true for us. If we pick up our cross and follow Jesus, then we too may know some of the shame that Jesus experienced. We too may know and experience some of the humiliation that Jesus knew well. We too may find people standing in opposition to us, maybe even mocking us in moments as Jesus experienced. But Jesus didn't hide the fact, did he, that there was a cost involved in following him? In fact, he told us instead to count that cost. The hard thing is for us, the question is, well, how do you count the cost in advance when you don't know what or how much it will cost in the end to follow Jesus? The answer is that you don't need to know the specifics of the cost in your own particular life or future if the agreement that you signed up for was, Jesus, I'm yours at any cost. The first follower of Jesus, Simon, carrying a cross behind Jesus, walking step in step, in line with him, walking in his footprints. The first believer, others would say, they'd point to the thief on a cross who cried out, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus would respond and say, today you will be with me in paradise. The first believer brought into paradise It's amazing. That moment is almost as if heaven whispered a promise to us, to all of humanity, that there would never be anyone who would be beyond heaven's reach. For even that wicked rebel who'd reviled and mocked Jesus just moments before could be rescued and saved by the mercy and grace and forgiveness of Jesus. Even a person with their final breath and final request can be rescued and promised a place with him in paradise. It's beautiful. Augustine, the early church father, he cleverly commented on the irony of that moment. I love what he brought out. The thief remained a thief is what he pointed out. You could say it that this man remained a thief all the way to the very end in that he was a thief all his life with his greatest heist being in his final moment that he stole a seat in heaven itself. The first follower of Jesus who'd pick up their cross and follow him, Simon the Cyrene. The the first believer in Jesus who'd be welcomed in paradise, the thief on the cross next to him. And the first ministry to the body of Christ is what you found in your passage today, Joseph of Arimathea. You see, what Joseph did for the body of Jesus, I think, becomes an illustration, and example of what we too can do for the body of Christ. Because you remember when Jesus died, there were many things that it accomplished, but one of them is that you became members of a family. And also in Scripture, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it also points out that you became a member of his body. It's telling you that God's going to continue his work on planet Earth, and he's going to do it now, no longer through the body of Jesus himself, but now through the larger body of Christ, his people, whom he would embody to accomplish his work moving forward, where Jesus remains the head, but each of us play a part in his work, working together. It was years ago, I remember hearing a man, he's a very wealthy and very established lawyer here in San Diego, who began to talk about the transformation that took place in his life when he met Jesus. And I loved listening to him as he talked about using terms like, I fell in love with Jesus. And because of that love, he started to explain to us that he began to use his wealth and his influence and his gifts and his status to serve Jesus. But then he began to describe something that many of us have probably found to be true, and that's that he found it to be very difficult and messy to step into people's lives in order to attempt to love them and serve them. And then he told us he was going to read us his life verse. And he opened to this passage and read of Joseph of Arimathea taking the body of Jesus, cleaning it, and preparing it for burial. Because there's imagery here that to minister to the body of Christ will often look and feel eerily similar to Joseph's experience with Jesus' body. I mean, if we're going to choose to now step into this and say, Jesus, if you've done that for me, then I will serve you and serve others. We know, like for Joseph, it's going to be risky. It will probably be risky. And Joseph clearly had a lot to lose. It's what it tells you in the Gospels, that, that he had a position as an esteemed member of the Sanhedrin that could instantly be taken from him because he's now identifying as a follower of Jesus. Because it had previously mentioned that he did so secretly up until the moment that he took courage to go to Pilate publicly. He had a position he could lose, his status and significance that came with it, his his security that was the byproduct of that position. All of that is being weighed in the balance when he chose to serve the body of Jesus. Man, it sounds like such a freeing thing to no longer find our security, our significance wrapped up in what we do, We're wrapped up in the title that we have or the balance that we find in our bank account or even in our relationship status. But for many of us, we fear losing our job because our concern is that we lose our sense of self with it. The truth is we're petrified of the thought of the relationship failing because we fear that our own self-perceived value disintegrates with it. It's a paralyzing fear for many that if the economy tanks, we have to finally admit not only that we aren't in control, but we have to finally admit that that the facade of control was actually what our peace was rooted in in the first place. My friends, we're only freed from those things, though, when we find something or someone more powerful, more beautiful, more captivating than money, power, prestige, and influence. And you'll only find something more powerful and more captivating in the person of Jesus in the place called Golgotha. Or look at what he's done for us. And so for Joseph, it was worth the risk. He went to serve the body of Jesus. But it wasn't just that it was probably a risky move for him and for us, but it's usually a messy move, isn't it? Wouldn't you agree, when you get involved in people's lives and you choose, Jesus, I'm going to serve you by serving others— Isn't it true that when you serve his body, it turns into a messy situation almost every time? In fact, the Gospels are clear, Luke is very, very clear, that he, Joseph, took down the body of Christ, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb. I mean, pause for a second to imagine this, to consider and picture the scene, that Joseph and John's Gospel says his friend Zacchaeus, they're there at the cross of Jesus, finding a way to loosen the nails that have fastened Jesus to that crude and rugged cross. And all at once, when the nail broke free, the weight of his lifeless frame came crashing down on top of them. They together would then care for the body of Christ. Getting it down from the cross, though clunky and clumsy it probably would have been, They would have carried it with gentleness, I'm sure, and great care to a solitary place where they could clean the body of Jesus. Both men, though, by the time they arrived at that quiet, solitary place, would have been covered because of the way that the body had fallen on them, and them having to carry him would have been covered in the blood, and the pus, and the bodily fluid, and all of the spit from the crowd that had been on Jesus was now on them. The sound of his agony, of Jesus's, was no longer heard. But I'm confident that the sound of their despair was present in a dimly lit room. The disbelief, the shock, the heartbreak of it all. You can't picture them caring for his body in that moment without picturing tears on their faces. As they, with tenderness and great care, removed the blood and wiped the wounds that were on his body. Soon they would find, as they looked down, that all that was on Jesus' body was now transferred onto them. The mess on his body would end up being their own mess on their own clothes, on their own body. As they worked diligently, wanting to honor the one that they'd come to believe was the anointed promised deliverer, the Gospels tell us they soaked these linen cloths and fragrant spices before wrapping it around his body. And I'm certain then when his body was prepared for burial, that they didn't just drag that lifeless body then in the street to the empty tomb. They would now, it seems like with an entourage of Jesus, other dear friends, these women who are mentioned by name, carry his body together, the body of their friend to be laid to rest. What they buried in the tomb, though, think about this. It was devastating because they buried more than a body. It was their friend. It was also their hope. It was their joy that they buried that day. To close that tomb was not just saying goodbye to a friend. It was for them in that moment saying goodbye to their dreams and hopes. It was saying goodbye to their faith. That God had intervened finally and things would never be the same. It was closing the door even on their perception of God himself because Jesus had said it, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And oh, what that must have done in the hearts of God's people to see Jesus and know that this is how God thinks of me. But all of that's lost. All of that's now being called to question because the one that they thought of as God among us now lay before them powerless and unresponsive. Hear me say that as you minister to the body of Christ, it's often going to look and feel eerily similar to Joseph's experience with Jesus' body. It's going to be risky. It's always going to be messy because they could not stay separate or clean from the mess when they chose to care for the body of Christ. And the same is true for us. You can't help or, or love on a hurting person. You can't love a broken person. You can't love a wounded or guilty person. You can't love a person who's in trouble unless you're willing to enter their mess with them, unless you're willing to love them with substitutionary sacrifices. Jesus has loved us. I love this statement. It's made in a book called Jesus the King where it just says it has to be this way because all life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. I mean, if you love someone who has it all together who has no major needs, someone who is nice and happy all the time, then loving them costs you nothing. So if you found that one or two people on planet Earth who you can love and have it not cost you anything, well, tell them to hide before the rest of us smother them because that's just not reality. Because if you live in the real world and if you try to love someone who's hurting, who has needs, someone who's broken, who's emotionally wounded or in trouble, loving them is inevitably going to cost you because you can't love them and lift them up without you going down to them in some way. You see, there's always some sort of a transfer that takes place. Some, some of their trouble, their hurt, their wounds splashes onto you. It transfers to you. It's always going to be you for them if you're going to love them. The illustration could be just the cheesy movie of the damsel in distress who runs across the street and ends up on the hood of the car yelling for help. And in that moment, the driver has a choice. I put it back and drive and go away? Or do I invite whatever her trouble is into my life? Because to love her means that you're inviting her danger, her drama into your life now. There's a substitutionary sacrifice that's taking place. You're exchanging your safety and security for her danger and drama. But if you're willing to love somebody, you'll do it. Think of it on a much smaller, less dangerous, less dramatic scale. It's when you sit with someone who's emotionally wounded, We can be tempted to run the other direction when we see them coming because we know if I invite them into my life, for me to develop a relationship with them is to invite their hurt and their disappointment, even their angst, into my life, and it's going to cost me something. It's going to cost my time because I'm going to have to do an awful lot of listening, and it's going to mean I'm emotionally drained. But the only way that an emotionally wounded, needy person will ever be filled and healed is when you allow yourself to be drained and for your joy to be transferred to them as their sorrow is experienced by you. For them to be filled up, you might have to be emptied out. For them, some of their hurt needs to be felt by you and hit you so that your peace and fullness and joy can splash back onto them. It's them or you. You have to love them in a substitutionary, sacrificial way, or they drown in their own sorrow. In simple terms, it's when you were in school and maybe you were prominent, maybe you were popular, but then it's that nerdy kid, The, the I was joking with Danny earlier, uh, he was talking about someone being an athlete. And I was like, I don't know, I'm not, not much of an athlete, I was more of a laser tag kind of kid. Um, it's one of those kids who like, and, and that awkward kid, the one who isn't liked, respected, or appreciated, comes and sits at the table and for you to be kind to them, for you to love them, means that you have to identify with them, you need to sit with them and be seen with them. But then the mean girls arrive, and they snap their fingers and are quick to say, what are you doing with those kinds of people? And in that moment, some of their nerdiness, some of their seclusion, some of their awkwardness, some of their isolation splashes onto you. Because their isolation hurt, it can't be helped by you unless you experience it with them. It has to be self-sacrificial, substitutionary sacrifice. This is what Jesus has done for us. This is precisely what the gospel is, that Jesus, that Jesus did this for us. Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When my needs were so great, when my brokenness was so deep seated, God's love was still greater and he emptied out that love to step into my brokenness to step into my neediness, to step into even my sinfulness. He became a substitutionary sacrifice, and it had to be that way because all life-changing love is just that. See, it might be risky. It's always going to be messy. But if you choose to love the body of Christ, my dear friends, it is always going to be worth it. So very worth it. In the story, how would the nations, how would the world, how would history know the power of a risen Savior if Joseph of Arimathea and his friends hadn't have taken the body of Jesus, patiently, gently cared for it, and placed it in his own tomb to be sealed, so that when Jesus emerged out of that grave, we could prove that Jesus was who he said he was. You see, it's true of Joseph of Arimathea. How would people know and experience the power of the resurrection savior in their life unless someone was willing to do this? And I think it's true of your loving service and sacrifice that you make for other people too. How will they know the power of the resurrection unless we'll love them the way that Jesus has loved us? My friends, we love and serve others even if, even when it may be risky or costly, even if, even when it is inevitably going to be messy because it's precisely what Jesus has done for me and for you. May I remind you, he would never ask or require us to do anything that he would not first do for us, and this is what we're watching him do on a cross. This is what we've watched him do throughout the length of the Gospels, where he's, he set aside his privileges, his rights, to leave the safety of, of heaven, its glory there. He let all of that go to lay down all of that to take on the form of a servant, and to give his life as a ransom. That's the beauty of the gospel. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.